and welcome back to the second episode of Square Mile of Murder. Yay! We've made it to episode two. Yeah. It's and a goddamn miracle. <laughs> brownie points to everyone who stuck with us up to this point. Yes. We promise we will only get better. In yes. theory. <laughs> Hopefully. Yeah. Well, we're, we're not doing too bad. No. I think we're, well. As I'm, a starting point. I, I might be biased, but I think we're doing okay. Yeah, me too. So this week, we are looking at the case of Scottish serial killer Peter Tobin. And uh, Taylor's going to tell you a bit about him. Yay. I mean, not like, not yay, but like, yay. Yeah, she's dancing on the sofa. I do that a lot. It's my nervous move. <laughs> Peter Tobin was born on the 27th of August, 1946, in Johnston, which is a town just northwest of Glasgow. Uh, historically, it's quite an industrial, uh, very working class area. And it's mainly a textile town, but there was also coal mining happening there as well. Tobin was the youngest of eight siblings uh, with four older sisters and three older brothers. That's a lot. That's a fuck ton of children. Like one sibling was enough for me. I mean, I have none, but um, seven is Seven is excessive. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it was a very poor area. The poverty poverty level was very high. Um, by all accounts, Tobin was a difficult child. Always a good sign. <laughs> uh, and in 1953, at the age of only seven, he was sent to an approved school. And in 1965, at age 19, he was sent to Borstal for forgery. Okay, so an approved school was a kind of boarding school in the UK where young people would be sent by the court, usually either for committing like uh, sort of petty crimes, but also if they were deemed to be beyond parental control, which is presumably why Tobin was sent there. Couldn't actually find an exact record to say whether it was crime or parental control, but yeah, it's, it's not a good look. <laughs> Either way. Yeah, and uh, Borstal, um, in some parts of the old British Empire, sorry, Commonwealth, they're called Borstal Schools and they were effectively an early form of Young Offenders Institute or Juvenile Detention Centre. Originally, they were for people under the age of 20 and later this was up to uh, 23 and they were sentenced in court to Borstal training. So they were tougher than the approved schools and they were enclosed like a normal prison so you couldn't leave but it kept uh, young offenders separate from the adult prison population. And so I've heard people talk about this. Is Borstal a place or is it a thing? And it's both. <laughs> so the first Borstal was part of Borstal Prison, which was in Kent in southern England. And then that just became like the generic name. That makes sense. So it is both a place and a thing. It's all of the above. <laughs> yes. And um, Borstals were run by the prison service in England and Scotland, whereas approved schools were run by the Home Office in England and Wales, and in Scotland they were run by the Education Department. Um, Both approved schools and Borstals were, for many, many years, plagued with rumours of the use of corporal punishment, with physical and sexual abuse, 
and both were abolished in the UK. Uh, approved schools uh, were abolished in 1970 and Bostels in 1982. And Bostels were replaced with what we now think of as Young Offenders Institutes. Fair enough. Uh, so this was just the start of Tobin's life of crime and deception. Uh, interestingly, though, he was reportedly a talented footballer in his youth and was quite successful in the Johnston amateur football team, Thorn Athletic, in the late 1960s. There were also reports that he joined the French Foreign Legion, which is unique in that it is a branch of the French military, but it's made up exclusively of non-French citizens who basically sign up to fight for France. Um, Tobin reportedly signed up for the French Foreign Legion at some point in his late teens or early 20s, but then later deserted. Um, but a lot, like a lot of the aspects of Tobin's life, this is difficult to confirm. Um, after leaving Borstel, Tobin is reported to have worked as a cook in a boarding house in Glasgow from 1966 to 1969. Pierre Tobin was known to have about 40 different aliases throughout his life. That's so many. I know. I mean, I have one fake name that I use on the internet and I get confused. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, now I feel like I should get a fake name for the internet. Uh, well, I don't want strangers finding me. Fair enough. I don't want people I know finding me. <laughs> Fairer <laughs> enough. Yeah, so 40 different aliases and these are only the ones that Police have managed to confirm there are probably many others. Dear God. But these names included Peter Wilson, James Kelly, Paul Semple, John Tobin, Peter Proben, and Pat McLaughlin. I like Peter Proben. Yeah, me too. <laughs> well, that's, that's Peter Proben. <laughs> it's kind of great. It is. It sounds, it sounds kind of like a cartoon character. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Also... Good porn star name. Yeah, my mind didn't go there. <laughs> <laughs> just me then. Yeah, just you. Um, and he was also linked to over 30 addresses throughout the UK. Jesus. Throughout his life. Oh. A bunch. That That's a lot. I mean, I thought I'd moved a lot in the last couple of years, and I've moved like three times. <laughs> I know. I've moved like, over the last 10 years, I've moved like eight times, but still have never had 30 different addresses so. i know it just seems very excessive yeah and this is why it was so difficult for the police and investigators to actually create a timeline of tobin's life when they're being investigating crimes or trying to uh, which is why we don't and probably won't ever have a complete accurate picture of the scale of tobin's crimes um, but we'll, we'll do our best. <laughs> we'll try. Yeah. He moved around a lot, as uh, I said, over 30 addresses. So he lived throughout central Scotland, mainly between sort of Glasgow over to, and going over towards Edinburgh and on the south coast of England. Nowhere in between, just... Just those. Yeah. But moved around a lot in those... I mean, come on, it's the UK. They're fairly small areas. Yeah, that's true. And, yeah, his main occupation was petty criminal, really. The old um, standby. But there were few periods where he was working under his real name. And when he was doing that, he had 
managed to get himself into jobs where he could move around a lot. And these are jobs that allowed him to travel throughout the UK. Um, so no sooner has he committed one crime, he's back on the road, back to Glasgow or back to the South Coast. And, you know, no one's the wiser. It's pretty smart. Yeah, and this is throughout 70s, uh, the 1970s, 1980s. So it's before mobile phones and GPS tracking and everything like that. So you're was... not, he was not being followed by the CCTV everywhere. No, it was a bit easier to get away with stuff back then. <laughs> um, in 1969, when Tobin was 22, he met his first wife, who was 17 year old Margaret. They met at a dance hall in the city. What city? Glasgow. Glasgow. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, possibly the Barrowlands, but I'm not sure. Yeah. I think I read like... in one place that it was the Barrowlands, but 60s and 70s, Glasgow had so many dance halls yeah. that could be any. Yeah. Um, she described him as charming when they first met. She said he was very gentlemanly. He was dressed in a nice suit and he was very polite and offered us drinks, soft drinks at the dance and he just had a very good conversation so you know soft yeah. drinks are nice yeah you know he's not trying to get underage girls drunk that's good yeah i can see yeah i can see that you know yeah. um after a few months of dating and being taken nice places like the cinema and on days out margaret began to think of tobin as the love of her life but of course she soon discovered his dark side one day, after a few months of dating, Tobin invited Margaret, who remember she's only 17, still living at home with her parents. And he invited her back to his flat in Shettleston, which is in the east end of Glasgow. And after a few hours, when Margaret tried to leave to go home, Tobin basically slammed the door and said, no, you're not leaving, you're mine now. Oh. Yeah. Hmm. And he held Margaret captive for months, where he repeatedly beat her up and raped her at knife point. Jesus. Until one day when he tried to kill her. After raping her, Tobin took out his knife, which he always has had on him. He always carried his knife everywhere, according to all of his ex-wives and most people who've ever known him. Um, he took out his knife and stabbed her repeatedly in the stomach. And then left her for dead. And the only reason that Margaret survived was because she was bleeding so profusely that the blood seeped through the floor and dripped through the ceiling of the flat below them. And the man who lived in that flat called an ambulance and she was rushed to hospital. And if it hadn't been for him, she'd have bled to death. It's absolutely horrifying to think. Yeah. Like... You know, it's one thing when, you know, if you worry about your bath overflowing into the flat below, but oh, I just... Yeah, and we've all done that. We've all, like, flooded a bathroom at some point or come very close. Have we all done that? <laughs> or come close or, like, spilled water, like, a lot of water yeah, and knocked yeah, stuff yeah. over. Yeah. We've all done something like that and been like, oh, my God, what if it drains through this, like, into the flat below or, you know... Makes a mess and yeah. I just can't even imagine. He's just stabbed her and walked out and... I don't understand and... how she like lived 
after yeah. that. It's a that's a uh, miracle. Yeah, literally a miracle. And although she survived, this attack then left her unable to have children. And in one documentary, she actually describes herself as being a absolute total jigsaw inside. Mm. That's a that's a scary mental image. Yeah. Um. Unfortunately, that wasn't the end of the trauma that Margaret would endure at uh, Tobin's hands. After lying in the hospital in a coma for three weeks, Margaret regained consciousness. And in one interview, she describes opening her eyes to see Tobin staring back at her and telling her not to say anything to anyone about what happened. Once she was well enough to leave, leave hospital, Tobin had her back in the flat prisoner again. And at this point, Margaret's family actually have no idea what's going on, where she is. She's literally just gone out with Peter Tobin one day and then disappeared. Um, And they don't know where he lived. I don't think they... Yeah, they'd never met him at all. Jeez. So, you know, he is just... uh, To them, he's just a man that their daughter met in a dance hall and has been dating for a few months. Um... And I couldn't find any record of if they ever actually reported her missing to the police, mm-hmm. which I'd like to think they did. Yeah, I, I would all hope like, so. Yeah. Uh, once she was back in Tobin's flat, uh, again, she was held prisoner and the violence just continued, really. Um, and not just against Margaret. And uh, yeah. There's a bit of animal cruelty coming up. I'd skip the next 20 seconds if you don't want to hear it. We don't want to say it, but... <laughs> I don't want to hear it. I'm sorry. I'm just going to take my headphones off. <laughs> so you can actually hear me. True. <laughs> yeah, so... So Tobin, you know, very considerately, bought Margaret a puppy to keep her company because she was lonely because he kept locking her in a flat and wouldn't let her leave. Imagine that. Yeah. But after a few weeks, because he wouldn't let Margaret leave, this puppy's kind of destroyed the flat and peed on everything. And, you know, just generally things that puppies do because they're not trained properly. And he decides he's had enough. And instead of taking the dog to the vet or to an animal shelter or just giving it to anyone else he decides puppy's gotta die and he throws the puppy out the window nope like I already didn't like this guy obviously mm-hmm. but you don't fuck with dogs no. they're, they're, they're better cats. than all of us Yeah. no fuzzy animals please any animals yes even the unfuzzy ones yeah don't fuck with animals. In the summer of 1969, Tobin essentially kidnapped Margaret on top of the captivity he was holding her in. Yeah. I um, mean, is it kidnap to start with when he's holding a prisoner? Or... or is it? I'm not really sure, but yeah. Yeah. Now he takes her on the road. Of course. Uh, he forces her to go with him to Brighton on the south coast of England, which is just under 500 miles away from Glasgow. And, and that's a long way. It's a really long I mean, trip. Yeah, okay, you can fly from now, you can fly like Ryanair, EasyJet, Glasgow to London in an hour. But 
it's like eight hours some like to get the train to the south coast oh yeah easily and even longer to drive yeah actually probably similar amount of time to drive but probably back then the roads weren't as good so it's a long ass way to haul someone against their will yeah in brighton is actually where tobin and margaret were married and they were married in august of 1969 uh in the uk if you're age 16 or 17 you can get married but only with parental permission so tobin enlisted the help of two friends in brighton to impersonate margaret's parents and witness the union because of course yeah nothing says uh Happily married, like, oh, I need you to pretend to be her parents so I can force her to marry me. Yeah. Like, a bit of a red flag there. Just a small one. Just little. Uh, but their situation didn't really change once they were married. Margaret was still little more than a prisoner, and Tobin was still incredibly abusive. All that had changed was that they were now by the sea. Yeah. That's literally it. It's the scenery has changed. Lovely. Yeah. Same shit, different day, different sea. Yeah. Um, on their journey to Brighton, they had visited one of Margaret's cousins, and that was Margaret's only real chance to try to escape from Tobin. But when her cousin tried to force Tobin to leave without Margaret, he attacked both of them and the cousin's friend, who was also present. Yeah. So, I mean, I assume that at least at that point, her family would have known where she was, but yeah, he also then mar- like married her and has people impersonate her parents, so... It's not a lot you can do at that point. Yeah, especially back in the 60s when there's a lot less technology, a lot less communication. Yeah, Harder to track someone down. Yeah. Too. Um, so in 1970, the police arrested Tobin for a series of crimes committed in Brighton, completely unrelated to his treatment of Margaret and his violence and cruelty to animals. Of course. And this is when she finally manages to escape, so... She was stuck in that hellhole for like a year. And Tobin was convicted and imprisoned for burglary and forgery. And the couple were divorced in 1971. And Margaret returned to her mother's home in Glasgow, completely traumatized, which I think must be the biggest understatement ever. Yeah, really. um, And tried to rebuild her life. Good for you, Margaret. Yeah. Good on you. Um, so at this point, uh, Tobin is around 23, 24 years old. Mm. He's been to approved school because he was so out of control as a child. He's been sentenced to borstal training. And now he's in prison for forgery and burglary. We also now know that he was a rapist and had attempted to murder his first wife. For a couple of years, the streets of Brighton and Glasgow were safe while he was imprisoned. But... Not for long. It was not to last. Yeah, unfortunately. Should have thrown away the key then. Could have made a very short episode. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, In 1973, Tobin was a free man once again. And it's now that he marries his second wife, Sylvia. Uh, But their marriage only lasted three years. And they were divorced in 1976. And Dasha had two children. They had a daughter and a son. But the daughter died shortly after she was born Mm. and i can't find a lot of mention of his son his youngest son is mentioned in a lot of reports and documentaries but 
his his first two children aren't really mentioned much, so mm. don't really know much about them. But Lake's marriage to Margaret, his second marriage was very violent, very controlling, as was his third marriage to Kathy, which was from 1989 to 1993. But unlike Kathy and Margaret, who were 16 and 17 when they married Tobin, Sylvia was 30. Uh, when she married Tobin in 1973. So she was actually older than him, because he would have been about 27 at the time, which is interesting. That is interesting. Because um, his MO has always been to go for vulnerable yeah. younger women, but, I mean, mm. Mar- um, Sylvia, unfortunately, didn't escape yeah. the treatment of, or the abuse of from Tobin, but... Takes all kinds, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, All three of Tobin's ex-wives would go on to describe him as a Jekyll and Hyde type character. He was outwardly charming and well-dressed. He was a perfect gentleman. But behind closed doors, he was a violent, sadistic abuser. Along with the physical and sexual abuse, he isolated all of his wives from friends and family. And in the cases of Margaret and Kathy, he moved them 500 miles away from their homes to live where they knew absolutely nobody. Yeah. I actually read a quote just a couple of days ago, and it was kind of along the lines of, abusers groom their witnesses just as much as they abuse their victims. And in the case of Peter Tobin, you can see he's like a prime example of this, this kind of mindset. He is the perfect gentleman in the smart suit, taking his lady friends on nice dates, takes them to the cinema, drives in the car, you know, out to dinner. And then everyone thinks he's wonderful, respectful and all that. And then, and then you get the whole, I can't believe you would do that. He's such a nice man when he's arrested. And we'll again go on to talk about, about that later. Yeah. But yeah, it's complete, complete Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah, just... Um, goes to show you can't necessarily can't gauge who someone is based on you know the public face they show to the world. Can't judge your book by its cover. Yeah, that that that's a shorter way of saying that for sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, while both Margaret and Kathy have spoken openly about their experiences living with Tobin, Sylvia has been much more reluctant. Even in court, she didn't state her full name. She's simply known as Sylvia X because she was so scared of Tobin finding her again. And that's why we've chosen to just use their first names. Their full names are out there online um, and in some like media and documentaries, but we are choosing to respect their privacy. Um, Peter Tobin has never been prosecuted for his crimes against Margaret, Sylvia, or Kathy. In the ITV documentary, The Investigator, a British crime story, which I highly recommend. That's really good. Yeah. She tells investigator Mark Williams Thomas, you think I could have done something, but there wasn't anything I could have done differently. If I stepped out of line, I wouldn't be here today. And I wanted to stay alive. And as long as I did, as I was told, that was my lifeline. And so that was Margaret's thoughts on... Um, the time she was kept prisoner in the Shelston flat. Mm-hmm. And it, this is a, one of the things that people just do not understand about domestic abuse and domestic violence. It is never, never as simple as just getting up and walking out. Margaret herself says anytime she tried to leave, anytime she tried to shout for help, when she sought the help from her cousin, 
it always ended in violence for both her and in the case with her cousin it was her cousin and her cousin's friend as well yeah it's clearly that's that's an intimidating situation to try to yeah uh, find your way out of and not uh straightforward whatsoever no so from the mid 1970s until the early 1990s Tobin sort of keeps himself off the police radar. In 1984, Tobin was alleged to have raped an eight-year-old over a two-month period in Portsmouth in southern England. Uh, He'd been living in the same council block as the young child and her family, and the girl eventually told her parents, who subsequently reported Tobin to the police, but after the girl was interviewed and examined, the police decided that there's just not enough evidence to proceed. This seems to have been Tobin's only run-in with the police in the 1980s. Um, Now, whether or not that's because he was keeping out of trouble, and as evidenced by, you know, raping an eight-year-old, probably not the fucking case. not buying it. Um, Or it more likely is due to the fact that he was constantly moving around, so they could never quite, you know, pin him down. Yeah, and also... 40 aliases. Yes. 40 known aliases. Yes, correct. Yeah. And we're not dismissing this alleged assault as, you know, or trying to play it down as, oh, that's all he did during this sort of 15, 17 year period from mid 70s to the end of the 1980s. It's just that that's all the information that we really have about it. Yeah, it's kind of a, a black hole. Yeah. And I said before, throughout the 80s especially, he had a number of jobs that allowed him to travel the length and breadth of the UK. Uh, one of his jobs was he was working for a car auction company. Um, so he was delivering cars around the country. And at another point, he was working as a lagger, which was in, which I have no idea what that is. Apparently, he was installing insulation panels into buildings. So, um, but again, this was another job where he was traveling around the country, site to site, away from home, back. You know, it's. And throughout this period, again, he was moving between central Scotland and the south coast of England. So we've got lots of different names, lots of different addresses, and we just don't really know a lot, unfortunately. Yeah. Just kind of... It kind of goes very quiet until the 90s. Yeah. In 1993, though, Tobin was living in Havant, Possibly is how you say it. We're not really sure how you say it. It's near Portsmouth. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's in Hampshire on the south coast. And he was there to be close to his youngest son, who was living in nearby Portsmouth with Tobin's ex-wife, Kathy. On August 4th, 1993, Tobin lured two 14-year-old girls to his flat under the pretense of needing a babysitter for the evening. And it's believed that he did this quite often as a way to get young girls into his home when he had his son for the night. That night, Tobin, after he'd lured these girls in, he drugged them both. He held them at knife point, forcing them to drink spiked glasses of cider and vodka. He then sexually assaulted and raped both girls, again at knife point, before stabbing one of them in front of his young son. So his son at this point i think was four years old what the fuck yeah he about two o'clock in the morning he then calls his ex-wife kathy and asks her to come and collect his son right then and there 
uh, because he's having severe chest pains and thinks it might be a heart attack. And uh, once she arrives, she offers to, to stay with him, wait for the ambulance. And he's like, oh, no, it's not as bad as I thought. No, it's maybe it's just a little bit of heartburn. Oh, of course. Uh, although, right, apparently some women have been known to have heart attacks and actually think it's just heartburn. Yeah, the symptoms are different for women than they women are for men. Women don't always... Oh, don't always get the shooting pains in the arm. Yeah. So they get this chronic chest pain and just think it's like heartburn and indigestion because we're never taught that actually it could be a heart attack. There's a great book out, it uh, came out like last spring. I think it's called Invisible Women. Um, fuck if I can't remember the author's name right now, but it's all about that sort of like how you'd be surprised how many things are designed just for men without like regard for yeah um like seat belts and crash test dummies yep. are always more of a male uh body size so fine if you're like six foot three but if you're five foot one yep not so much not so great yeah yeah or even just like um like the size of cell phones these days like my phone is too big for my small lady hands <laughs> and this is the small phone mm. in this line of phones so it's like just yeah, i never even thought of that as it's it's crazy when you start to like look at all the different examples that like just just how hostile the entire world is towards women great yeah super awesome mm -hmm. i mean just just look at what we're talking about we're talking about a man who got away with domestic abuse rape murder for years decades 40 odd years yeah so back to the main point which was that you know tobin's decided it's not a heart not a heart attack after all because he's a man and he knows the science oh yeah so it's fine obviously yeah. And uh, so Kathy's taking their son. She goes back home to Portsmouth. And Tobin went back in the house. So he's got two drugged girls. One of whom has been stabbed. Jesus. And he decides he's going to turn on the gas taps in the kitchen. And just leave both of them to die from carbon monoxide poisoning. Great. What a great guy. Yeah. So... Turns the taps on, grabs whatever he's taking with him on the road, and he flees. Mm. And it is just sheer luck that those girls survived because one of them managed to escape and raise the alarm. And, you know, I'm not sure if it was neighbors or who it was, but they managed to get the other girl out and got them both to hospital and they're both alive. Thank God. Um, Tobin fled Havant and was on the run for 40 days. Uh, he first hit out with a religious sect in Coventry and then in Brighton. And he was only found because his car was spotted in Brighton and he was promptly arrested and held without bail. On the 18th of May in 1994, he pled guilty to rape and received a 14-year prison sentence. And he was released after serving 10 years 
at the age of 58 when he returned to Scotland. That's a pretty light sentence. Yeah. That isn't... Because that isn't just... I say just. That isn't just rape. It's rape and attempted it's murder. It's attempted murder. And because, it's two counts yeah, as well of and, each. Yeah. Plus grievous bodily harm. He stabbed one of them. Yeah. I hate just 10 years for all of that. Yeah. You know, casually. I mean... So that puts us at, like, what, 2004? It does. And, like Taylor just said, Tobin's now back in Scotland. And uh, because he was now a registered sex offender, that meant he had to register with the local police whenever he moved house. Which, for someone who moved as often as Tobin did... It'd be like every other day. Yeah. I can't imagine he really was going to do that. Yeah. Um. So he kind of scooted around under the radar for another two years, but then popped back up on the police radar again, this time for murder. Yep. Taking him 60 years, but he's finally got there. In September of 2006, Tobin was working as a handyman at St. Patrick's Roman Catholic Church in Anderston, which is a neighborhood just west of Glasgow City Center. He's working there under the name of Pat McLaughlin it's an interesting area because it's it, it was basically destroyed in the 60s and 70s when the m8 motorway was built through the yeah. s- center of the city and so now it's kind of this it's industrial a, wasteland almost. it's a bit of a no man's land yeah. kind of it's between you've got the city center on uh, just east of anderson and then west you've got finiston which is like one of the most popular hipster neighborhoods in the country. It's it's the Brooklyn of Glasgow. Yeah. So while he's working at this church uh, under his alias, uh, it turns out that there had been an arrest warrant issued for him in November of 2005 for breaching the terms of, you know, being a registered sex offender and moving without notifying the police. And also working at St. Patrick's Church was 23-year-old Polish student Angelika Kluck. And she worked there as a cleaner to help finance her university studies. And she was last seen on the 24th of September 2006 in the company of Peter Tobin. And her body was found five days later, hidden under the floorboards of the church. She had been beaten, raped and stabbed. And as if that wasn't bad enough, the forensics, uh, uh, forensic officers believed that she had been that she was still alive when he placed her beneath the floorboards. Nope. I have no words for that, honestly. Like mm. it's just so beyond fucked up. I mean, at this point, it's not surprising. No. Anything that he's that this man does, but. Yeah. but still. I mean. Yeah, it's just, just awful. It's t- completely taking advantage of, you know, people in the church and, you know, their charity and their goodwill. Um, and then to go and do this to, to Angelica was just... Awful. Oh, yeah, it, it's horrific. After um, her body is found, police issue a UK-wide appeal for Pat McLaughlin to come forward 
as he was the last person seen with Angelica. And a former neighbor of Tobin's contacted police to tell them that his real name was Peter Tobin. A nurse at a hospital hospital in London also contacted the police to tell them that he had been admitted with chest pains under yet another false name. Oh, this wow. time uh, he was going by James Kelly. Wow. Um, police it's a bit of variation. It's a bit it is. Different. It's different. I mean, at least yeah, you know. He was doing Pat, which is not that far from Peter when you really think about it. But yeah. James Kelly, you know, after well, he's that's different. Yeah, after he's committed this gruesome murder, he has to at least change the letter of the first name. Yeah. Um so police arrived at the National Neurology and Neurosurgery Hospital in London, and October seventh, Tobin is formally charged with Angelica's murder. And in March two thousand and seven, Tobin's trial begins at Edinburgh's High Court. And he's charged with the murder of Angelica Cluck and two charges of attempting to pervert the course of justice. And he's found guilty, as he very well should be, because he was. And at sentencing in May that year, he's sentenced to 21 years for murder, plus 30 months for breach of the conditions of the sex offenders register. And following... Angelica's murder, the uh, detective David Swindle, who was the senior investigating officer on Angelica's case, and who, quite frankly, is really a, such a fantastic officer and just generally really great guy. And he has a great last name. Yes. <laughs> David Swindle didn't believe that this was Tobin's first murder. Because, well, we all know, people don't usually start killing in their 60s. Um, unless it's something really seriously provoked. Yeah, some inciting um, incident. Yeah, it's not... So you don't have someone just side in their 60s they're going to become a serial killer. Yeah, not so much. No. So Detective Swindle set up Operation Anagram. And that was a nationwide operation involving every single police unit in the whole of the UK. So that's Scotland, England, Wales, and Northern Ireland. That's a lot of people. That is a lot. Um, and the main focus of this operation was to see if they could connect Peter Tobin with any other unsolved crimes. Because let's say he's 60 and this is the first murder victim that they've found. So they all just assumed correctly that it wasn't his first murder and that there were many others. No. And, yeah, so they looked at unsolved murders, missing persons cases, anything that fit his MO. And by 2009, across the UK, detectives were reportedly following up on 1,400 lines of inquiry. That's <laughs> so many. Yeah. I mean, that's not necessarily 1,400 missing people are unsolved murders but that's a hell of a lot of just of like, inquiry yeah for one man it's a ton of stuff to sort through if you can yeah. imagine that like trying and trying to connect all the pieces and oh imagine that dot to dot yeah no <laughs> Ugh. and um uh operation anagram did lead to the discovery of uh, Peter Tobin's two other known murder victims 
Vicky Hamilton and Diane. So, 15-year-old Vicki Hamilton disappeared on the 10th of February, 1991, on her way home to Reading near Falkirk from her sister's home in Livingston. Now, for those who aren't familiar with central Scotland, Falkirk is northwest of Edinburgh. It's roughly halfway between Glasgow and Edinburgh, uh, maybe like slightly closer to Edinburgh. And Livingston is about 15 miles southeast of Falkirk. Vicky needed to get two buses to get home from Livingston to Reading. Uh, The first was from Livingston to Bathgate, which is only a few miles from Livingston. And then she needed to change onto another bus going towards Falkirk. But Vicky never made it onto that second bus and she was never seen again. Uh, Her disappearance sparked the biggest missing person search in the history of the Scottish police at the time. But despite the efforts of the police and the general public, it would still be more than 16 years before Vicky's family would find out what had happened to her. In 1990, Tobin and his third wife, Kathy, and their young son, moved from Brighton on the south coast up to Bathgate. And it was later in 1990 that Kathy finally escaped from Tobin. And she took her son and first they took a bus to Glasgow and then a coach down to Portsmouth and... Uh, Kathy was able to reunite with her family. And you've got to remember, she was only 16 when she'd married Tobin. Was it a year or two years earlier? Jesus. So she's, she's only in her late teens at this point. Tobin was actually living in the home in Bathgate alone at the time uh, of Vicky's disappearance. And it was only about six weeks after Vicky went missing that Tobin moved back to the south coast of England again. Uh, first to Margate in Kent. So Tobin's reason for moving, supposedly, was to be closer to his son. Uh, but Margate is actually still 140 miles away from Portsmouth, where Kathy and their son were both living. Aww. And on the roads in southern England, that's a good two and a half hour drive. Yeah. According to Google Maps. <laughs> it's interesting that he's just moving from like, one like basically opposite ends of the you know land mass of scotland and england there's still a lot more there's still a lot more north but like (laughs) in the grand scheme of things it's a big chunk of distance to put between yourself over and over and over again yeah i mean it's roughly 500 miles from central scotland to the south coast of england so it's it's an interesting choice and i mean it clearly worked well for him but like i would not have the patience for that i i don't think i'd make a very good criminal in that regard no but like fucking hell <laughs> yeah but I, I couldn't be fucked with that no. no so when officers working on operation anagram realized that tobin had been living in bathgate at the same time that vicky went missing they began to investigate tobin's brief residence in town uh, his former home was searched and police managed to recover the knife that he had used on Vicky hidden behind some bricks in the attic. Uh, and this was 16 years later and it still had both Vicky's and Tobin's DNA on it. I mean, that is incredible. That's great. I mean, he's hidden that knife away in the attic thinking no one's ever going to find it. And then not only do they find it, he didn't even bother to clean it. No. Like, or if he did, he didn't do a very good job. That's uh, and, that's great. 
Yeah. Following the discovery, Scottish police charged Tobin with the abduction and sexual assault of Vicky Hamilton. This charge was then increased to include the murder of Vicky Hamilton after police discovered her body buried in the garden of Tobin's former home in Margate. And remember, he moved there just six weeks after Vicky's disappearance. So, it's in Kent. So he brought her body from fucking Scotland? He kept her body in Bathgate for six weeks. You've got to have a strong stomach. I mean, we already know he's absolute scum of the earth. Yeah, fucking lunatic. But to be able to have a dead body around for six weeks and then drive 500 miles from middle of Scotland down to the south of England. With your dead body. With a six-week-old dead body. No, a body that's been dead for six weeks. Yeah. <laughs> I knew what I meant. Yeah, no. Oh. It works. Yeah. Um, but, but, oh, I just... That uh, turns my stomach. fucked. I can't even deal with that. At the trial in Dundee's High Court in November 2008, the jury took uh, just about two hours to find him guilty. Tobin was sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum term of 30 years. The following month, Tobin gave formal notice that he intended to challenge the verdict and overturn his sentence. Uh, at that point, his legal team were not required to disclose the grounds for appeal. This, you know, that happens later on in the yeah. process. But uh, it ended up Tobin didn't go through with the appeal and it was dropped in March of 2009. Yeah. So this is life with a minimum term of 30 years. This is after life with a minimum of 21 years plus the 30 months for Angelica Cluck and... Um, sex offenders register breaches so he's now two life sentences minimum of 50 51 years yeah so and so two, and he's yeah. like in his 60s right yeah 2008 he would be 62 yeah so he's going to die in prison good <laughs> yeah and along with Vicky's body the police also found the body of Dinah McNichol who had gone missing in August 1991. 18-year-old Dinah was from Tillingham in Essex and had been to a music festival in Liphook, Hampshire. We think that's how you say it. Yeah, well, sure. <laughs> Liphook. That's a good name. I it like is. That. Liphook. She'd been to a music festival in Hampshire. There you go. <laughs> and she was due to arrive back home on the 5th of August, but she never made it. Dinah had actually originally been meant to leave on the 4th, but she decided to stay on an extra day after she met up with a guy there. But they then realised that they had no way to get home <laughs> this next day. Of course. Uh, so they hitchhiked and were picked up by Tobin. Have you ever hitchhiked? Um, I'm trying to think. <laughs> Technically, yes. We Taylor McDaniel, what the fuck? It was my mother's fault, for the record. You were hitchhiking with your mother? Yeah. How old were you? 13. Oh my god. <laughs> and she I'm was... gonna have words with your mother. Go for it. <laughs> we we had just gotten our uh 
to St. Bernard's and they were little puppies and we'd taken them up to the top of Okimo, which is a ski hill in Vermont during the summer because you can like hike on the trails and stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they were like 12 week old puppies. Not meant to go on mountain hikes. Well, you know, maybe they were a little bit older, but they got tired and they didn't want to keep going. They just sort of plopped down and went to sleep. And so my mother, we ended up hitching a ride with this family driving down the mountain in their minivan. Yeah, but see, that's how they get you. They have a woman or they have a child with them. And so you think it's safe. Yeah. Don't do it. I wouldn't recommend it. But I, I Especially do, if there's children in the car. I do remember that happening. <laughs> so thanks, Mom. You're the best. Hitchhiking, unfortunately, didn't really work out for Dinah. Dinah was headed back to Essex and her new gentleman friend was heading back to London. So Tobin picked them up and dropped off uh, Dinah's gentleman friend, whose name I couldn't find. Um on the M25, which is a big motorway that pretty much is round, like a ring around London. So after dropping off Dinah's friend, um, you know, Tobin, in theory, carried on towards eth- ethics. <laughs> you developed a lisp. I think I may have. Come on, let's do this. We got like 10 minutes till your wife comes home. I know. (laughs) Got to finish before the podcast gremlin catches us. Um, So after Tobin dropped off Dinah's man friend, uh, supposedly he carried on towards Essex to drop her off near her family's home, but she was never seen alive again. Uh, However, interestingly, there were regular withdrawals of 250 pounds made from her bank account at cash points throughout Hampshire and Sussex. But Dinah had told her family that this account was strictly for saving to go traveling or for future studies. During Operation Anagram, police managed to match up the locations of these cash withdrawals with places Tobin was either living or working at the time. But in 1991, with no leads and no sightings, Dinah's case went cold. Uh, but police reopened the case in 2007, following new leads that had come to light as part of Operation Anagram. So at the time of Dinah's disappearance, Tobin had been living in Margate, because it's only six months since Vicky's disappearance. Mm-hmm. And uh, during Operation Anagram, a former neighbour of Tobin's in Margate had told police that shortly after moving there, he'd seen Tobin digging a huge hole in the backyard. And originally, Tobin claimed that it was, that he was digging a sand pit for his young son, which, yeah, a foot deep (laughs) is a sand pit. Six foot, six feet is a grave. Yeah, not so much. Um, And... The neighbor says in all the documentaries that he's been interviewed in, he always says, he, you know, just jokingly look, shouted over the fence, are oh, you going for Australia? And this is when he comes up with the sandpit excuse. But then a few days later, this hole's all filled in. Hmm. And Tobin tells the neighbor that social services had told him that a sandpit wasn't safe for such a small child. And I mean, the child is two at this point, but. 
Yeah. We, I had a sun pit from being like a baby. Yeah. I had a, I had a sandbox. It was, it was shaped like a turtle. Mine was in the wheel, like the tire of an old tractor. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. But then when we grew up and trying to get rid of this fucking tractor tire, because (laughs) nowhere would take it, even like the local, like, Garage and service stations didn't want it, but like, no. <laughs> I like you. I think, can't remember where. I remember we had to roll it somewhere. We rolled it down the street Just at one point. Just down the hill. Let it, set it free. A little bit suspicious, though. Yeah. Yeah. The neighbor just thinks nothing more of it and goes on with his life. And he also described Tobin as pretty much the perfect neighbor, which is interesting. Yeah, really. Um, he never had parties, he never had, never played loud music, never caused problems for anyone. And, I mean, I think now we can surmise that this is because he had two dead bodies in the house at one point. Yeah. But also, let's say six weeks he kept Vicky's body before moving to the south of England. That's, he also kept it in the house at one point as well. And we don't know if I'm not sure if he kept, if he buried both bodies at the same same time, time. because they found Vicky's body first in this pit. So that suggests that he buried them both together, which means he kept Vicky's body for six months. That is, that makes my skin crawl. It's really gross Mm -hmm. and terrifying. Because murdering someone isn't enough. You've then got to keep the cops around nope 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 in november of 2007 police dug up the garden of tobin's former home Uh, initially they were only looking for dinah's body but they found both dinah and vicky's body in the exact spot where the neighbor had told them that tobin had been digging his sand pit uh and Police weren't expecting to find Vicky because she had disappeared six weeks before Tobin had moved into the house. So. I think we've said all we need to on that topic. In September 2008, Tobin was formally charged with Dinah's murder. And in July of 2009, his trial began at Chelmsford Crown Court. But proceedings were suspended following the judge's ruling that Tobin wasn't fit to stand trial uh, on health grounds as he was awaiting surgery. Like, tough titties, man. Just get him a chair. Yeah, really. A really uncomfortable one. (laughs) And the case then resumed in December. And on the 16th of December, 2009, the defence offered no evidence at all. I mean, he's already uh, got two life sentences... Minimum term of 50 years. Can't really do anything at this point, can they? No. And the jury took just 13, 13, one, three minutes to deliberate and find him guilty. That's real fast. Yeah. And, yeah, given another life sentence and the judge recommended that he never be released from prison. Finally, someone's speaking some sense. Yeah, I think that's a good recommendation. I agree. Uh, So Operation Anagram ran from 2006 and was wound down in June of 2011. 
By 2010, police had narrowed their focus down to nine unsolved murders and disappearances, but they failed to produce any physical evidence, only circumstantial. And as Tobin was refusing to cooperate or confess to any other crimes, there was nothing else the police could do. So although it does remain uh, act, an active investigation in so much as that like, you can still contact the operation via email and new leads will be followed up, it's, you know, they've pretty yeah. much... It, it's pretty much wound down to yeah. that, but they are still following it up. Um, and I can kind of understand that, don't necessarily agree with it, but from, you know, the Crown Prosecution Services point of view, their main objective when, or one of the main objectives or considerations when they're deciding whether or not to charge someone is, is there a reasonable expectation of conviction? Yeah. And if there isn't, they're not going to go for it. So I can understand that they're not tripping over themselves to prosecute him on, you know, quote unquote, weak evidence. Yeah. Because it's all circumstantial. I mean, circumstantial evidence is evidence. You need both if I get murdered on my way home tonight, your DNA, your wife's DNA is going to be on me because I've been in your house. But then your circumstantial evidence needs to prove that you didn't kill me because you were somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, you need both. Let's make sure that I didn't murder you. Yeah. I'd really, I'd really like you not to murder me. For the record, for the police, <laughs> I did not murder her in the future when she was going home tonight. <laughs> if that makes any fucking sense at all. Yeah. I can still understand why they weren't delirious to press charges. I yeah. mean, he's, he's in prison. He's not going anywhere. Not going but... anywhere. If there was sort of, you know, incontrover incontrovertible evidence linking mm -hmm. him to a crime, uh, that's, that's another thing, you know, especially in terms of, like, justice for victims or victims' families or yeah. whatever. But... You know, at least he's behind bars and he's staying there. Yeah, that that I think is the main thing. Now, it might sound as though we're being a bit harsh and presumptuous about Tobin's guilt. Uh, Disclaimer, <laughs> just getting it in there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but while he's been in prison, he's made claims to prison staff and other inmates and a psychologist that he has killed at least 48 women and given his known criminal history and his treatment of women and sort of you know the path his life has taken in general just how much of a complete and utter shitbag he was yeah that um it's pretty likely that there's some truth in his claims and whether it's 48 or just before um detective david swindle and criminologist david wilson and many many other people yeah. believe that Tobin is definitely responsible for more than the three murders he's been convicted of yeah and there's a lot of suspicion yeah and we kind of wanted to go into more detail but I think we need a whole series of episodes to cover yeah everything yeah but there's there's five that he's been five murders that he's been very very publicly connected with uh, firstly, the unsolved murders of Patricia Docker, Jemima MacDonald, and Helen Puttock in Glasgow in 1968 and 1969. They're more commonly known as the Bible John murders. 
it's a it's a big unsolved case here in glasgow yeah that's the whole can of worms it really is um and it's technically the longest running case in scottish history and at this point it's been unsolved for more than 50 years Jeez. uh but i mean uh peter tobin is now 73 so if and it's a big if if he is bible john you know it's you know it's still a viable investigation because he's still alive and if it was someone even younger than him there's a good chance they're still alive even yeah. someone who's older than him yeah in case you can't really tell we're not convinced uh that tobin is bible john but we are planning a special bonus episode on bible john sometime soon yes in the, the uh, not too distant future yeah and we'll actually explore this case properly and decide who we, a pair of armchair detectives, believe is Bible John. Maybe we'll change our minds. Maybe we won't. But, you know. Yeah. But more on that later. Yes. Coming soon. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So he's, you know, suspected to maybe by some people be linked to the Bible John cases. Um, the second set of cases that Tobin has been very publicly linked to are the disappearances of Jesse Earle in 1980 and Louise Kay in 1989, who both disappeared from Eastbourne on the south coast of England. Uh, Jesse's remains were found years later, but no trace of Louise Kay has ever been found. Jesse Earle was 22 when she went missing in 1980. She was walking along the cliff tops near Beachy Head in Eastbourne on the south coast of England. And that's a really like famous spot, Beachy Head. It's well known and it's known as being a very safe place to live as well. Uh-huh. So Jessie's remains are found hidden under dense undergrowth near the cliff path with her bra wrapped around her wrist bones so tightly that the police believe it had been used to restrain her. Despite this, her case was always treated as a missing person a case with cause of death unknown. I have many thoughts. Yeah, I don't get that. I don't know about you, but I don't tend to go walking along a cliff path and wrap, take my bra off and just wrap it around my wrists super tight. I mean, not every Friday night, certainly. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and also, like, I don't know why sh- it's not a m- missing person in the sense that they have found remains so it's a murder it's a homicide yeah i mean the the way that she was found it, it's an insult to say unknown i think yeah i agree um louise k on the other hand was 18 when she was last seen by a friend after a night out in eastbourne in 1989 Uh, Louise dropped her friend off home and was planning on sleeping in her car at Beachy Head that night. But she was never seen again and no trace of her or her car has ever been found. And it's as though she just disappeared off the face of the earth. Which is interesting because this case is covered in um, the investigator Mm -hmm. program and it's quite easy to hide a body getting away with it less easy yeah but getting rid of a car is actually quite difficult because yeah. they're registered they're taxed everything like that there's a paper trail yeah there's a record and yeah you can change number plates but you still have chassis numbers yeah like on, the numbers and yeah 
somewhere along the line, that car should have shown up again yeah. if it had been sold on. But it's never been retaxed. It's never been reinsured or anything. So that, along with Louise Kay, has just disappeared. Hmm. But previous to the uh, Louise Kay's disappearance, Tobin had worked for a car auction company. So oh, he yeah. has many contacts in this area. And there have been suggestions at one point that he was selling a hand-painted car, which apparently fit the description of Louise's car. Hmm. So, but again, that's never been proven. Yeah. Unfortunately, barring a deathbed confession, we'll likely never know the scale of Peter Tobin's crimes. Yeah. And families of Louise Kay, Jesse Earl, and everyone else who fell victim to Peter Tobin will never get that closure that they want, they need. And Louise Kay's sister, as she said, if it is Tobin, I know he's in prison and I don't care about him. I just want to know where she is. So if there are remains found, we can bury her. Yeah. It's about closure. It's about respect for these victims. Yeah, exactly. It's about the families having a place they can go. Would that be a grave memorial? Yeah, whatever. some some marker yeah. left on this earth to say that like this person was here and yeah. you know was mm. was taken out of you know her life far too soon. Following his conviction for the murder of Dinah McNichol in two thousand nine, Tobin received uh, his third life sentence like we mentioned and uh he has no chance of ever being released from prison good yeah he is 73 uh now as of the recording of this episode um and he's serving his time at edinburgh prison which is often still referred to by its old name Soughton prison i believe that's how you say it Soughton. <laughs> um, he was hospitalized in 2012 for chest pains uh, and a suspected heart attack, and again in 2016 following a suspected stroke. I have to say, I'm glad he's rotting in prison, because that's where he belongs. I mean, the supposed point of prison is rehabilitation, and clearly he can't be really rehabilitated. Yeah. He was put in prison in the 90s, and... Less than two years after, or two years after being released, he killed Angelica Cluck. Yeah. And in that time, in between being released and killing Angelica, he had attempted to assault a neighbour. He doesn't deserve to walk free. He's a danger to the public. He's definitely a danger to society. I think he he was, he's evil. And he was a predator his entire life. And despite all this, I hope against all odds he makes some kind of confession before he dies. I don't think he will, but I really hope he does. Just to give these other missing persons, unsolved murder victims, you know, give them some peace, give them some closure. Yeah, something so they can and wrap things up. Yeah, but they say he's clearly suffering ill health because I don't think you quite get away with faking a heart attack as easily in prison. I should hope not. <laughs> um, 
in, you know, for suspected stroke. He's not long for this world. And I just so, hope. Hopefully he grows some kind of conscience, but, uh, you know. I don't think he, like I say, I really hope, but I don't think he will, because the man is pure evil. Yeah, it does not seem super likely. No. And that is the very complicated case of Peter <laughs> Tobin. And if you're confused at the end of it, don't worry, so are we. Yes. Um, we don't really... We don't really have any idea exactly how many victims he has or ex even exactly where he lived. And we have a podcast gremlin creeping about. We do. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, that's the best we can do with the information we have. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. And so be sure to uh, stay tuned in the future where we uh, are potentially going to discuss the Bible John cases. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we will be back next week with another, another case. Yeah. So thanks for listening. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye.